Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. You pick up a Jewish newspaper, what does it say? The Jews are in trouble, the Jews are disappearing, the Jews are in bad shape. He says, you know, it's better for my heart to read by them than to read by us. We, we don't want to hear hope, but I, I've made it my life mission to try to defy that expectation. It's for a very simple reason. We need to offer a narrative of hope if we're to have any hope. Because nobody wants to be part of, of a failing enterprise, number one. And number two, a people as old as us, we've learned something about how to get through tough times. When I was a kid in Hebrew school, I went to Hebrew school. Well, I was taken to Hebrew school. Didn't always make it into the classroom. But the, the, the curriculum that I was taught was persecution of the weak. By the time I was nine years old, I knew the names of all of that Jew haters in all of history. There was Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Haman and Titus and Vespasian and Hadrian and Torquemada and Chelnitsky. Hitler and Heydrich and Himmler and Goebbels and Goering and all of them. And now were the, they were the characters, the cast of characters in our Hebrew school curriculum. And I knew the names of all of those haters long before I knew the names of any of the rabbis of the Talmud. I knew that long before I knew the names of the great books of the tradition. That was our curriculum. Every week, another story of how someone was out to destroy us. Now, it's not that that's not true. It's certainly a true part of Jewish history, but it's not the whole story and it's not the important part of the story. It's true, we have a day in the summertime called Tisha B'Av. You know this day, the ninth of Av. It's, on, it's the day on which the Jewish people lumped all of the bad stuff that happened to us on one day. Because otherwise it would fill the rest of the calendar, right? So you put it on one day. And you celebrate that one day, you commemorate that day. But that's only part of the story and it's not the most important part of the story. The most important part of the story is not what happened on Tishabov. The most important part of the story is what happened on the next day. What happened on the 10th day of Av. Because what happened on the 10th day of Av was that we regrouped and we survived that we imagined a different way to be in the world. That not only did we survive catastrophe, we learned from catastrophe, we grew from catastrophe, we reinvented ourselves out of the ashes of catastrophe. And that is the more important story of Jewish history. And that's the untold story. And the reason it's untold is because you don't want to hear hope, you want to hear sorrow. And I'll get you some service before the day is out, I'm sure. But let's begin with some hope. Because I think it's very important at this moment that this catastrophe has begun to wane, that we're able to open our eyes and regroup. And really more than that, that we're able to reconnect with the deep wells of cultural resilience and spiritual creativity that are our legacy, that are our gift from our ancestors. So let's go back in history for a moment. Talk about what happened once. Talk about the greatest catastrophe in Jewish history. 
happened in the year 770 in Jerusalem. It's the most beautiful building in the world. The ancient temple of Jerusalem was the most beautiful building in the ancient world. It was a gleaming, sparkling cube of white marble crowned with a beautiful golden parapet. It stood on a plaza of white marble surrounded by a triple colonnade, three rows of carved marble columns. It was so magnificent. And the rites and the rituals that were celebrated there were so magnificent that tourists from all over the Roman Empire would come to witness them. And for Jews, it was more than just a tourist spot. This was the place where heaven and earth touched. This was the place where the creator enters the world. It was the site of the academies. It was the site of the markets. It was the site of all that was identifiably Jewish. It was the direction we turned when we prayed. Every ancient synagogue from that day until even today, but ancient synagogues in the Roman era always had an image of that temple painted on the wall. This was the symbol of our identification with our past, the symbol of our identification with our people, no matter how diverse the people Israel were in their celebrations of Jewish life, this was the symbol that gathered us into one and identified us. And it was the place where God entered the world. There was a room. There was a room in the middle of that temple. It was called Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum. In the first temple, the one built by Solomon, it held the Ark of the Covenant. That's the one that Harrison Ford found in the movie. And that's now in our warehouse in Virginia. In the second temple, in the second temple, the room was empty, but it was believed and it was palpably felt that God lived in that room. So much so that nobody ever went to the room. The only person who ever went into that room was the high priest on Yom Kippur. He spent a month in meditation and study and preparation so that he could enter that room with a pure heart and a completely focused mind. Then he would put on a white gown and enter that room in a cloud of incense to pray for the welfare of the people of Israel for the new year. And just before he entered that room, they tied a rope around his leg in case he would drop dead in the middle of the ritual, they could schlep him out without hurting anybody. That's how much they believed that God lived in that room. And one afternoon, in the summer of the year 70, that building was destroyed. The Jews had suffered more than 100 years of Roman mismanagement and misrule. And at one point in 67, they gave up and began a revolt. They gave up and began, and the, and the Romans freaked out. First of all, because Judea was the most prosperous province in the empire, and to lose it would be to lose a lot of tax revenue. Second of all, because the Parthian Empire, the Persians were just to the east, and if Rome lost Judea, there'd be nothing to hold the Persians back from invading the Eastern Empire. And third, because they had to make an example for every other territory in the empire that if you, if you 
if you revolt against the emperor, something bad would happen to you. So they took their best general, Vespasian, who was a Spanish bullfighter, took him out of France. They took their best legion, the 10th legion, put him on boats, sent him across the Mediterranean, landed in Tyre, in Lebanon, marched down the coast, murdering, pillaging, burning, destroying, without mercy. Came to the corner, turned left, went up into the hills of Jerusalem and inside the city of Jerusalem. Anyone ever been to Jerusalem? Who's been to Jerusalem? All right, so you know the answer to this question. How long does it take to walk from the Jaffa Gate to the Kotel? Even if you stop and buy a sheshbesh board on the way, shouldn't take more than 15 minutes. Took the Romans five weeks to fight their way from the gates of Jerusalem to the Holy Temple. Imagine what that's like, hand-to-hand, -hand, bloody, urban, guerrilla combat. And they came to the Temple of Jerusalem, and they did something very un-Roman. See, Romans are pagans. Pagans are pluralists. Only a monotheist will kill you for your religion. Pagans believe, you know, when in Rome, you daven like a Roman. You know, you don't destroy a local temple. You don't destroy a local cult. That was very un-Roman, but the temple had become the identifiable symbol of this revolt, and they needed to make a statement, so they decided to destroy the temple. How do you destroy a building that big? Well, simple. The building was made out of limestone faced with marble. Limestone is calcium carbonate. has lots of holes in it where oxygen, where air is, bubbles. You build a big fire. You build a big fire. Calcium carbonate heats up quickly. It explodes. The building exploded. The building exploded. Now imagine what that looked like in the eyes of those who saw it. One afternoon in the year 70, everything sacred to the Jewish people was destroyed. Everything. Everything sacred. The priests were gone. The altar was gone. The temple was gone. The sacrifices were gone, the academies, the markets, they were gone. The whole thing destroyed in one afternoon. Just imagine what that looks like. There were some survivors, survivors of the battle. Of, and they came down to the little town of Yavne, where the rabbis had cut a separate peace with the Romans. And they came before the great rabbis. They came before Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the leader of the rabbinic community. And they asked him one simple question in good Palestinian Aramaic, Vigates. Where do we go now? What do we do now? We have no priests, we have no sacrifice, we have no temple. How do we worship? We have no place in the world which belongs to us. We have no power. We have no way to control the conditions of our existence. We have nothing which identifies us as who we are. And then they must have asked him the most bitter of all post-Holocaust questions. Does God hate us? What kind of God lets his city, his temple, his priests be destroyed? What kind of God does this to his people? Does God hate us? Now, what did Rabbi Yochanan say in return? Because all of Jewish history depends on what he says next. Well, stop for a moment. What could he have said? He could have said, he could have said, Yes, God hates you. It's done. It's over. The Jewish game is over. We have no temple. 
We have no priest. We have no sacrifice. We have no place in the world. We have no city. We have no power in the world. We have no being. It's over. Go home. Go become Romans. And I'm sure a bunch of Jews did that. They, they didn't have him to tell them that. They just did it. If your God lets your temple be destroyed, it means that the gods of the other guys are stronger than your God. So you give up, you go become like them. And they assimilated into the Roman Empire. I'm sure that's what happened. The nascent Christian community certainly taught that. The nascent Christian community said, you've rejected God's Messiah. That's the punishment. So I'm sure there were some Jews who bought that line. That would be one option. A second option would be, he could have said to them, wait, wait. God destroyed the Pharaoh. God will destroy the Romans. Just wait. Sit here and wait. How long would they have waited? They've waited a generation. Would they have waited two generations? Would there be anybody left after three generations? He could have said, wait. He didn't say either one of those things. He said something remarkable. He said something quite remarkable. He said that you all know what he said. You just don't know that what he said was what he said. You all know what he said. He said to them something that his teacher's teacher's teacher taught him. He said to them, First statement, the world stands. What do you mean the world stands? Well, consider for a moment that the most important institution, the most important symbol in their lives had just exploded in front of their eyes. They really thought that their world was off its kilter, but it's deeper than that. Because you remember that the holy temple was built on an outcropping of limestone called which is the foundation stone of the universe in the great ancient Near Eastern mythology. The foundation stone of the universe. It's still there, by the way. It survived. It's under that very attractive golden dome, which is called the dome of the Azoi. That's the rock. That's the rock. But they saw it explode. So they thought that rock exploded. So they really thought that the was knocked off its axis. They really thought that. And he said, no. Your world still stands. You didn't lose a world. You didn't lose your God. You didn't lose your place. You lost a building in Jerusalem. And you know something? We can rebuild. We just have to rebuild on new pillars. No more temple. No more priests. No more sacrifices. No more place. No more place. Because we are a people. We will never have sufficient material power in the world to defend geography. You understand that 1948. The first time Jews had geography again in the world. But in 70, the rabbis were wise enough to say, we can't defend geography. So we'll take Judaism out of the realm of geography. And we will found it on new pillars. And what are the three pillars? This. Look around. This is the answer to that question. We will learn Torah. 
We will learn, we will learn God's word together. And God's word will now be the sort, the center of our being. Instead of a Beit HaMikdash, we will have a Beit HaMidrash, learning places. And what you have here in this Beit Midrash is the authentic Jewish answer to that question, where do we go now? Learning in every example, that's what Jews do. In America, one learns so you can be an adult and make a living. In Judaism, when you can make a living, then you have the opportunity to learn. Learning was always an adult thing. School, school, that, there's no word for school in Hebrew. They'd say for a book place. There's no word for school because there's no word for an institution where children go to. The institution of learning is Beit Midrash and that was always filled with adults. Kids were allowed in, but only in a side room until they gained literacy skills. And the word for a side room is cheder. Anybody go to cheder as a kid? That's what it means. Cheder means room. It means a room off to the side of the base bedroom because you weren't old enough to participate in the life of the Beit Midrash. Now you are, glad you're here. Everyone learned. Tevye's dream that if I'm a rich man, I'll sit and study holy books seven hours every day. That's what it means to be rich. I mean, it's nice to have a Lexus or a Tesla, but to sit and study with Rabbi Shmuley seven hours every day, Taka, that's rich. I have a book in my library. Somebody brought it to me. It's a book of Mishnayis, the book of Mishnah, core of Jewish law, code of Jewish law. Was, would belong to the Baker's Mishnah Circle from some town in Europe. My father's a baker. So somebody found this book in a, in a Yiddish shop and brought it to me. So what happened? The baker, bakers go to work three o'clock in the morning so you can have fresh bread in the morning. When they finish, two, three o'clock in the afternoon before these guys went home, they'd sit in the basement and learn for an hour. And this was the book they were learning. Basement learning, that's the beginning. And Torah becomes the center. Torah becomes the center. I'll show you how. What direction do you pray? When you pray, which direction do we turn? East. You turn toward the east. Okay? Why in the east? That's where Jerusalem is. What if you're in Jerusalem? What direction do you turn? Toward Harabayat, where, where the temple used to be. Now, for just a moment, you understand what happened to these people. You turn to the east, that's where Jerusalem is. In Jerusalem, you turn to the Harabayat, to the Temple Mount. Lose the temple, you are disoriented. East is orient. Facing east, I am oriented. Lose the east, I am disoriented. Is this east? How come? You're the rabbi. No, no, there's a better reason. It's okay. There's a better reason. If you were in this room, if we were to Daven Mariv tonight, which direction would you turn? No, you would not turn that way. That's east. You would not turn that way. Which direction would you turn? Why? Because that's where the Torah is. Because east is where the Torah is. Because east is no longer a geographic orientation. Orientation. You're now oriented toward the Torah. That's the direction you turn. That's al Torah, Avodah, we no longer have sacrifices. Instead, verbal prayer. And verbal prayer is Avodah Shabalev. 
the, the, the work of the, of, and the worship of the heart. And so we gather in a Beit Knesset to pray together, to share together. Anyone ever been to a Shiva minion? Want to see a miracle at work? You want to feel God's presence? Come to a Shiva minion. Somebody in the community is dying. And we who are the neighbors, the friends, the associates, members of the show, we show up bringing food. That's another custom of the Jewish people. We show up because it is our job to convince our neighbors, our friends, that there's what to live for. That life can overcome death. That meaning can overcome the darkness. We don't want anybody getting stuck at the cemetery. So we fill their home with conversation and with memory and with prayer so that they feel the power of hope in that home. That's what a minion is. That's what he means by avodah. And gimilut chesed means acts of kindness. So if school is where you learn Torah, and shul is where you learn, where you daven, where you pray, where do you learn gimilut chesed? Say it again. You can learn it everywhere, but there's one particular place where it is taught to you. At home, it is the rabbis in response to the destruction of the Holy Temple in 70 that give us an ideology of Jewish home life. Open the Bible, you won't find a lot about Jewish homes. They live in tents, but it's not an ideology of home life in the Bible. But you open the Talmud, and that's where you find an ideology of Jewish home. Because there the rabbis understood that's where you create character, where conscience is cultivated. And what did they do to the Jewish home so that you understand that this is a place of God? They took the gestures of the holy temple and they put them in our home. Your Shabbos Abel is the altar of Jerusalem. I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. Friday night, tomorrow night. Friday night, you're going to light candles. You're going to bench lich. You're going to make kiddush. And then there's something on the table. What's on the table? A challah. What's the word challah mean? It doesn't mean egg bread. It is the name of a sacrifice that was offered in the temple. Now, before you're allowed to touch that challah, what do you do? You have to go wash your hands. You wash your hands and you make a bracha. And what's the bracha? You thank, we give... Acknowledge God who has commanded us to wash our hands. Where in the Torah are you commanded to wash your hands? Answer, you're not. Who is commanded to wash his hand? The priest, before he makes a sacrifice. You become the priest. The challah becomes the sacrifice. The table becomes your altar. Oh, and by the way, you're about to eat that challah. There's one more thing you got to do. I live in LA. We don't just have challah, folks. We have gluten-free, high-protein, whole wheat, high-fiber, imported Belgian chocolate, basil, oregano, Wolfgang Puck, $18. What do you do before you eat that imported Belgian chocolate, basil, oregano, high-protein, low-fat challah? You pour salt all over the damn thing. Why? Because every sacrifice was offered with salt. You are in fact, you are re-engaging the rites and gestures of the Holy Temple of Jerusalem at your Shabbos table. 
because this now is the locus of divinity. This is where God lives within the bonds of a Jewish community because God did not abandon us, because God does not hate us. In fact, the rabbis had it the other way around. Not only did God not abandon us, and not only was God not banished from the world at the destruction of the temple, the Hefek, on the contrary, God was liberated because before that, God had to stay in that ugly building in Jerusalem. And now God can live in Phoenix, Arizona, or in Scottsdale, or North Scottsdale. Well, maybe not North Scottsdale, but Scottsdale. I mean, God can live anywhere Jews gather to celebrate Torah. God can live anywhere where Jews gather to teach chesed. God can live anywhere where Jews gather to pray. You want to hear a strange thing? Anyone ever been to the Kotel in Jerusalem? You've been to the Kotel? Okay, good. So you face the Kotel. It's the holiest place because it's the retaining of Herod's temple, of the temple of Jerusalem. It's the closest you can get to the Holy of Holies without actually being there. Anyone ever turn around? Anyone ever put your back to the Kotel and look that way? You know what's the other side of the plaza? You know what's on the other side of the plaza? A gorgeous yeshiva called Porat Yosef, paid for by some New Jersey billionaire. And you know what they do on Friday night in the yeshiva in the base midrash of Porat Yosef? They daven. Now, wait a minute. I can't get to the hotel because I live in Southern California. So I dive in the Valley Beth Shalom. And you can't get to the hotel because you live in Scottsdale. So you dive in here at Ortsion. It's an interesting name, Ortsion. But you dive in here in Scottsdale. But people who are exactly 100 yards from the hotel don't go to the hotel to dive in. How come? How come there's synagogues in Jerusalem? How come everybody doesn't go to the hotel? Because God no longer has a place. When the temple was destroyed, the rabbis decreed that God is anywhere we gather to come. And palpably so. God is not, and I'm going to ruin this for you, and I apologize, but God is not more present at the Kotel than he is here in Scottsdale. In fact, you could make the opposite case certain days. Because that's what the rabbis understood was the meaning of that event. Now, what did they just do? They just did something remarkable. They faced the most profound catastrophe in their history. And instead of backing away from it and giving up and surrendering, they turned the catastrophe into a reason to reinvent Jewish institutions reimagine the mission of the Jewish people in the world, reconceive of the deepest values of Jewish life, and completely remake Jewish identity in the world. That's the genius of this people. That's the remarkable genius of this people. Catastrophe is not the end, but the beginning of process of reinvention. And we have this within us, this remarkable, remarkable capacity for resilience, for reinvention, for, for spiritual creativity, to find God in new corners of our life. Here's the point of this. When we tell the story of the Jewish people, we love to tell a story about continuity. We call this tradition. We've got a song about it. We call it tradition. And we say we are intimately connected with the chain of generations that came before us. 
We're connected to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, and Jacob and Rachel and Leah. We're connected to Moses and Miriam. We're connected to Isaiah and Jeremiah. We're connected to, Reb, to Hillel and Shammai and Rabbi Akiva. We're connected to Abaye and Rava. We're connected to Sadia and the Rambam and Nachmanides. We're connected to the mystics and the philosophers of the Jewish Middle Ages. We're connected to Theodor Herzl. We're connected to the Baal Shem Tov. We look back and we say, we are connected to these people. And it is our sacred obligation to take what we have received from our past and pass it on to our children. That's our obligation. And that's what makes us so nervous. Because every generation of Jews from the very beginning worried that their kids wouldn't take it as seriously as their parents did. That's the anxiety of the narrative of continuity. And that's our narrative. And we take great pride because it validates us to understand that we are passing on something which is old and tried and in some sense divine. That's our pride. That's our validation. That's our, that gives us authority. It certifies what we're doing. And it's a true narrative, the narrative of continuity. But it's incomplete. It's incomplete because there's another narrative. It's the opposite narrative in some sense. It's the narrative of discontinuity. And that narrative says that in certain moments of Jewish history, of outside, or circumstances from inside necessitated a reinvention of what we do, a reconceiving of Jewish identity, a reinvention of Jewish institutions, a reimagination of the mission of the Jewish people in the world, a restatement of core values, a reinterpretation of what we're doing, of our, of our mission and project, and a rereading of our texts. And it's at these key moments of discontinuity that the community, is, its courage is tried. Because if in these moments, the leaders of the community simply did what their ancestors did, if they simply went on doing what we always did, we would die as a people. If Yochanan ben Zakkai had said to the people of Israel, God defeated Pharaoh, God will defeat the Romans, we would be gone. It took a certain quality of chutzpah, a certain quality of courage, a certain quality of vision to say, you know, what got us here ain't going to get us there. And so it's going to necessitate something new, something revolutionary, something creative, something we've never tried before. That's the ethic of discontinuity. And it's circumstances at various points in Jewish history that that's precision that the community had to make. And here's the irony, that all the great books that you associate with Jewish life, all of them were written out of moments of discontinuity. See, in, continu in moments of continuity, you don't need a book. You just do what they always did. You just do what your mother did. You do what your grandmother did. But it's out of the moments of discontinuity that somebody sits down and says, well, let's try it this way. So out of the exile to Babylon in 586 BCE comes the text of the Torah. And out of the confrontation with Hellenism comes the canonization of the Tanakh, of the Bible. And out of the destruction of the temple in 70 comes the Talmudic tradition, the Mishnah and the Gemara, the Talmudic tradition. And out of the confrontation with philosophy comes Saad Gaon and Maimonides, the Jewish philosophical tradition. 
and out of the Reconquista of, of, of Spain, of Muslim Spain by the Christians, comes the Zohar and the mystical tradition. And out of the massacres of Eastern European Jewry during the pogroms of Chalnitsky and onward comes the Baal Shem Tov and the Hasidic tradition. And out of the failure of emancipation comes the Zionist idea. Each one of the great movements and books is a revolution in a moment of discontinuity. And then it gets solidified and it becomes the substance of, of going forward in continuity. And the purpose of telling you all this, very simple. We're in the middle of a moment of discontinuity. Look around. Jews ever come to shul with masks on their faces, except in Purim? Right? What are we going to do for Purim, by the way? How do you know you're wearing a mask if you're already wearing a mask? Rabbi, I need you to figure this out before Purim. But you understand that we're living in a moment of catastrophe. We're living in a moment of catastrophe. Someone said that it's actually a triple catastrophe. COVID is the pandemic of 1918, the depression of 1929, and the political upheaval of 1968, all at the same time. But it's not just this moment of COVID, it's really a broader thing called modernity, which has presented the Jewish people with a set of circumstances that are brand new to us. Individualism, the security and freedom of America, the sovereignty and power of the state of Israel, all of this is brand new to Jews. If you read Israeli newspapers, first of all, God help you, have aspirin on hand when you do. You have to understand that after 1800 years of being powerless, we're not very good at governing ourselves. And if that statement isn't corroborated, just open any Israeli newspaper and you'll see that I'm right. It's gonna take us a couple of hundred years to get good at governing ourselves because we haven't done it in a long time and we're not very good at it. But you see, this moment of catastrophe, of crisis, of reinvention, it's not just a moment that we can decry and get depressed about, although Jews love to get depressed. It's really an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to change. It's an opportunity to reimagine. It's an opportunity to reinvent. It's a stimulus to reinvent. What's gonna come? I don't know. First of all, let's take a look at one small thing, this. This, I don't know what you did on Rosh Hashanah. Okay, what I did, not this Rosh Hashanah, last Rosh Hashanah. Last Rosh Hashanah, we couldn't be together. So we built a TV studio in our synagogue. And on first day Rosh Hashanah, it was me and the cantor and a film crew. That was Rosh Hashanah at my synagogue. Second day Rosh Hashanah, second day Rosh Hashanah, my partner did service. I stayed home with my wife. Guess what I did? I turned on the TV. We have a smart TV. You can get computer on the TV. And I went to show in New York and Denver and San Francisco and Houston and Jerusalem. I, I listened to 10 or 12 of the greatest rabbis and cantors in the world. What, what did anybody, don't confess this in front of your rabbi, but did anybody do this? Is that, and that's not going to change. That's not going to, that's, that's, we are now one Jewish world. We want it to be one Jewish world. We got it. This is not going to go away. Right? I do a Torah study, Shabbos morning in Valley Beth Shalom. We actually record it on Thursday mornings and we broadcast it on Saturday mornings. I get email from people in South Africa arguing with me. There's this guy in South Africa that loves my Torah study. 
you know, I have to get up in the middle of the night, but it's all right, you know. I mean, it's just remarkable that we are now one world. This has forced us to rethink what and who we are. I know I've been speaking now for what, about 40 minutes? So I know that you can't stand this much good news. So already you're thinking to yourself, doesn't he know what kind of trouble we're in? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he know all the statistics? Hey guys, I'm a rabbi. I know all the demographics. I know all the bad news. I'm so good at delivering bad news, I could make you cry, right? But why? That's not what's important. What's important is that we are a people with a long history of cultural resilience and spiritual creativity. We have met many, 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 many more crises than this one and much deeper than this one. And we have found within ourselves the capacity to reinterpret the faith and wisdom of our ancestors to talk to the moment and to find meaning and our purpose in this moment. And we will do it again. We will do it again. I'll give you one tiny example and then I'll You shouldn't all be here. And I'll tell you why you shouldn't all be here. Because a generation ago, the greatest moment of human evil, the greatest act of human evil ever perpetrated on this planet was perpetrated against the body of the Now, if the Jewish people had come out of the Holocaust and said, to hell with it, enough, just like we said, Yochanan ben Zahar, wouldn't that have been the logical thing to do? Anyone remember Madeleine Albright? Who was Madeleine Albright? Anyone for those of the, for the young ones in the crowd? She was the Secretary of State under, the, I think, the first Clinton administration, right? Right. Madeleine Albright came to this country with her parents from, the che from Czechoslovakia. Her parents were academics. And shortly after Madeleine Albright was elevated to the position of Secretary of State, she made an announcement that she made a discovery. And the discovery was, she's one of us. She's Jewish. What happened? Her parents escaped from Czechoslovakia, came to America, and said, if this is the way the world treats Jews, we're going to hide. We're not going to be Jewish anymore. We'll be Episcopalian. That'll be safer. And we'll raise our daughter in that church, and it'll be safer. And it was only when she became Secretary of State that she discovered this. That's not the aberration. You're the aberration. What she did was normal. What they did was natural. To protect your child from something as horrific as Hitler? No wonder they wanted to become Episcopalians. And you, miracle of Jewish existence and Jewish resilience. That's how Jews respond to catastrophe, with a reassertion of what's most important to us. There's a beautiful midrash in the Talmud. When the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea, the Bible says, they believed in God and they trusted Moses. So there was a guy in the Talmud who says, of course they believed in God. And of course they trusted Moses. They just crossed the Red Sea. If you'd crossed the Red Sea, you'd believe in God too. And the other rabbis of the Talmud said, no, 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 no. Not true. Not true. After so many years of being a slave, after so many years of seeing children thrown into the Nile, after so many years of seeing your elders crushed beneath the projects of Pharaoh's business, Pharaoh's work, after so many years of being dehumanized, humiliated, and oppressed, and beaten, after so many years of the horrors of slavery, 
that this people was willing to step into the Red Sea and take one step toward a different tomorrow and follow Moses and accept this vision of being free, that this people had enough hope latent in their souls, they were able to dream of freedom, is the greatest miracle of Jewish history, even greater than the splitting of the sea. And I would submit to you that there are Jewish children who learn in this building, generation after the Holocaust, two generations after the Holocaust, is a greater miracle still. Tonight is Rosh Chodesh Kislev. You have 24 shopping days until Hanukkah. Given those supply chain problems, you better get it done quick. So in 24 days, we will stand in front of Menorah, Kanukiah, and we'll light a light. And we'll say, right? And then, God who did miracles for our ancestors. In those days, at this time of year, and I want you to add two words to that bracha. And in our day as well. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we have the chance to engage a little together. Um, for our dear friends on Zoom, we will be monitoring your questions here, and we will start with our friends uh, here in the room. So Pam Bueller, if you haven't met her yet, wonderful. She's going to mic, so hold up your hand, and we'll get to hear a question from you. In modernity, the greatest catastrophe that befell the people is really the Holocaust, the Shoah. And then after the Shoah, we have the rise of the State of Israel. And the question is really, are, are the two connected in some way? Was the Shoah the price we paid to have an Israel? I mean, they're connected politically, certainly. But the question is, in some metaphysical way, was this what had to happen for that to happen? And you have to ask God that question, first of all. Politically, certainly, they go together. But, you know, there's nothing in the world that brings meaning to the destruction of six million Jews and a million Jewish children. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely Nothing. The question is, you take, take it from God's point of view down to our point of view. What did the Holocaust teach us? What did the Holocaust teach us? And there are many, many speculative answers to this. I'm a fan of a great rabbi named Yitz Greenberg, who I believe is taught here, right? Right. He's one of my great, great, great. And Yitz's answer is, we learned that we cannot live without worldly power. That world, you, you, what, what Yochanan ben Zakkai did was the right move in the year 70, taking us out of space, taking us out of power so that we could float through the next 1800 years of history. But Theodore Herzl in 1895 offered an answer. He said, now it's time for us to return to temporal power because the world has changed and the world will not let Jews live without some degree of temporal power. And that's what the state of Israel represents. It represents our reconnection with power. Now, having power imposes all sorts of moral responsibilities. And that's the big debate in our Jewish community and in the Israeli community. What are the responsibilities, the moral responsibilities that come with having power? But at this point, we understand that having power is a whole lot better than not having it. That the world doesn't let you have a choice between one or the other. You should take power because it's the only way to defend ourselves. Remember. July 4th, 1976, 
July 4th, 1976, for any American, was the bicentennial of the United States of America. For any Jew, it meant something different. What did it mean? Entebbe. What happened in Entebbe? An Air France airliner, ironically, Air France, wouldn't you know it, right, is, is diverted to Entebbe, Uganda by, by terrorists. And the terrorists tell all the non-Jews to leave the plane. And the only ones who stayed were the Jews and the flight crew. The flight crew, the captain died a couple of years ago and he was a hero of the Jewish people because he stayed with the plane. And what happened next? Out of the sky comes Yonatan Netanyahu and Ehud Barak and the Israelis, and they rescue most of the people from the plane. Meaning you couldn't have done this before the state of Israel existed. Because you, before you have a country, you don't have an army. You don't have that capacity to protect. So this is Yitz's answer to the question of what we learned out of the Shoah. I, I would go one more step, which is if the state of Israel had not been created at that moment, I don't, don't know who would have the moral wherewithal to go on being. It was a remarkable statement of saying yes to the world at a moment when the world screamed no to us. And that I think is another one of the great miracles of Jewish life that we said, yes, we will live as Jews. We will stand up proud as Jews. We'll be visible as Jews even though the world makes it incredibly dangerous to do that. And I, I think that's one of the effects of the Holocaust. I don't like to think of it in terms of causes, but one of the effects is that this was a statement of Jewish, assertion of Jewish life in the face of the most profound, profound moment of Jewish death that there ever was. And that's how I think of it. So thank you, wonderful question, I appreciate it very much. I'll answer any question about anything except ice hockey. Oh, good, thank God. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So I was talking to Rabbi Shuli earlier at dinner. When, they, when the pandemic began, um, I, I went to look for analogies. I want to know when else we face something like this. And I, I couldn't find anything that helped me understand, for example, the pandemic of 1918. And that was a different circumstance because there was a world war going on. So one of the things I found was some very interesting writings about the Great Depression. There's a woman who teaches University of Pennsylvania named Beth Wanger, who wrote her doctoral dissertation on the, the Great Depression and New York Jews. And she makes a fairly interesting observation. She said, the Great Depression itself did not change Judaism. What it did was advance trends that were already latent in the community. It advanced them 10 years in one moment. And I think the pandemic has done the same thing. I think we went to bed in 2020 and we woke up in 2031. And so the things that were happening in our community already are happen happened when we moved 10 years quicker the disaffection and disaffiliation of Jews from Jewish institutions. So there's going to be a reorganization of Jewish institutions, and that's never comfortable. And we would normally have had 10 years to do this, 10 years to say, you know, there's a shul here and a shul here. Let's put it together. And if we had 10 years to do it, we could get it done. But doing it in one year is really hard on people. Right, the same kinds of things with lots of institutions in the community, we're gonna be asking ourselves, 
Can we live without this institution? What does it do? And then we're going to be asking ourselves, what new institutions? Where do we need to invest our resources as a community to give us a chance to survive into the next generation? And I think that's what's going on. And it was, and the pandemic forced us to do this. I'll give you one other, like, I'll give you a silly example. Not a silly example, I just gotta be found you. I don't know if you did this too. We have, I'm, a, I'm in a conservative synagogue. These are conservatives. I'm in a conservative synagogue. Our services were interminable. Like interminable. Like high holidays, like five hours, six hours long, you know? And people, people, you know, they come when they come and they leave when they leave, but there was a, you can't do that line. You know, Zoom gives you about an hour and a half, two hours max. So we had to sit down and say, okay, if we only have two hours to pray, what's that got to include? So now we're now we're back in person. So now we have one hour and 45 minute Shabbos morning service. We start at 10. And we finish at a quarter to 12. Nobody complains. I don't know why. I don't know why they don't want a five-hour show that starts at 8.30 and ends at 1. But somehow they're seeming to manage with it, you know, to be less facetious about it. It's forced rabbis and cantors who organize worship to ask ourselves, what does worship feel like from the from the feet of the worshiper and not just from the front where those of us who are responsible, because I'm responsible not just to the tradition and the authentic expression of Jewish prayer, but I'm responsible also for the experience of how people experience that person. And that's a, that's a way of thinking that I was not trained at the seminary. I was trained the opposite. I was trained up with social people into doing it the right way. Well, it turns out, you know what? People can pray in other ways and, and learning to worship in new ways is happening now all over the community in the face of the, learning to do education in new ways in the face of the pandemic. I think we're going to see a lot of revolutionary changes, creative changes in the way that we, in the way that we, um, in the way that we do Judaism, okay? Um, in my community, Again, it's my life to move you from a place of despair to a place of hope. Because I happen to believe that Judaism is a factory for hope. But this whole thing exists to do, to give you hope. And, and if Jews are walking around like my Hebrew school curriculum, full of depression and full of, of, of worry and full of anxiety and full of... Look, I got news here. America is enough anxiety for all of us. <laughs> Let's be people of hope. And I, I think that there's hope. I really do. For Jewish life, I think there's hope. For America, I'm not so sure. But for Jewish life, I think that there's a great deal of hope. And I want to, and I'm encouraged by the creativity of look, if we were a dying people, we wouldn't have this. Look, look at this. Just look at him as an exhibit. Put him in a booth for a minute. Brilliant young Orthodox rabbi comes to the middle of nowhere in Phoenix, Arizona, creates this revolution in adult learning. That is the envy of every community around the country. That's not a dying people. That's not a dying people. That's an opportunity. That's a, a vision of what could be. This is not a dying people. There'll be fewer Jews and they'll look different, by the way. We have more Jews who are coming from the outside. So they're going to have Jews of color. Jews who are gay and lesbian and other kinds of gender things. They're going to be Jews who have different 
different ways of expressing themselves, but they're going to be Jews because this is a people full with, with promise and hope. And that's what people want most of all. That's what people want most of all. Yes. So just, just before here, we have a question on Zoom from our friend, Dr. Erwin Sandler. Does our history of create solidarity with other people who have experienced similar tragedies? Thank you, Erwin. It's supposed to. <laughs> It's supposed to, look, what does the Torah say? Because you were a slave in the land of Egypt, you were to look upon the oppressed of anyone and see their pain and feel their pain and feel, the, and feel empathy with their condition. That's what you're supposed to learn from them. The problem is when you are in pain, it's hard to look at other people and feel empathy. And you tend to become very self-absorbed. And we Jews, we're really good at getting self-absorbed. I don't know if you knew that, right? We're really good at that. So we're supposed to be able to feel the oppress of the others. We're supposed to reach out and help. And one of the things, my great teacher, Harold Schulz, in the last years of his career in his life, began an organization called Jewish World Watch because he read a series of articles in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof about people Darfur. Anybody know where Darfur is? It's in the Sudan. Anybody know where the Sudan is? I don't either. But there's some, there's a, there, there is a terrible civil war going on in that country. And there was this whole region and whole sector of the population that was being starved and broken, starved and, and, and genocide committed against them. And Showice made a very simple argument. You can't say never again and mean just us. If you see genocide in the world, and in some ways depressing, was the way that the community responded to, them, to him. There were people in the community who said to him, Rabbi, how many Jews in Sudan? Rabbi said, none. Well, then why do we care? And Shulwai said, because we know genocide and we feel their pain. And people said, that's not our problem. Now, it's interesting. I will, I will accuse you of something. The people who said that were almost all older people, younger people, high school kids, teenagers said, we'll work with you, sign us up. That's the Judaism they were craving because they were craving a sense in which their Judaism gave them a vision of the world and a sense of responsibility and a sense of their own efficacy to change things in the world. And his greatest support for Jewish World Watch came from teenagers and kids in their 20s. That I think is a really promising effect. So the answer is, Yes, we're supposed to feel the pain of others. We're supposed to respond, but often we don't do it because we're human. And when you stub your toe, that's the whole world becomes your aching toe. And that's how Jews respond sometimes to their own pain. Yes, how are you? How are you? It's my camper. Camper, Yes, I know. I know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You said things, you have a way of storytelling and tying things together um, that the I so appreciate it. I have a big stake in him. I mean, first of all, I want to welcome Rabbi Green and tell you how you are to have a person of his imagination, his character, and his humor, and his wisdom here. 
and uh, he's in every way a worthy successor to Micah. But Micah was a project of mine because I was very close to Barry, his father. And you all know, those who've been living in this community long enough, that there was a tragedy with his father, and then there's a tragedy with Micah and the pain. It's just terribly profound. And Brianna is now a rabbinical student who studies Talmud in the room next to him at the AJU. So I see her every Monday morning when I go in to teach. And uh, I'm hoping to have her in my class when she reaches the fifth year of the program. So and I see her and I see so much of him in her. And uh, yeah, I mean, a catastrophe beyond, beyond words. So yeah, thank you. Could you help, excuse me for just one good I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Young kids who lost their last year for the love. Yeah. 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 Any words of wisdom? I guess the you know, the last one. This, uh, yeah. Well, that's not bad either. Um, Bob, yes, thank you. Um, it's a sixteen-year-old young woman in my community who I teach in a in an ethics class, and she wrote to me one day and said, "Can I? Can we have a talk together over Zoom?" And I said, "So we got on a Zoom one night. It was a really special young woman." And she says, you know, Rabbi, I'm in 11th grade, which is the hardest grade. Thank you. It's the hardest grade of high school because I have all these AP classes and I'm worried about college. And she said, the only thing that makes high school worthwhile is being with your friends. And I haven't been with my friends in a year. And she said, oh, God, thank you. Oh, now it's raining water. Here. This is my fire. Thank you. She said, I live with my parents. She's an only child who's wonderful. She said, I love my parents. My parents are spectacular but I, I i'm so i'm having such a hard time not being with friends and i i think look let me make a silly prediction which is that we will not know the mental health implications of this pandemic for about 10 to 20 years but there are going to be profound implications there are young children we have kids in our nursery school you know, who are going to school, they came back to school late last year, but we're wearing masks, who are not going to learn how to read facial expressions. There are going to be, there are kids who lost all their middle school years. There are kids who lost the last years of high school. This is going to have a huge impact on our kids and on us. And I, we, I can't begin to tell you what it's going to be. So here too, I'm going to invoke the genius of the Jewish people. Social distancing is the opposite of Judaism because we cope with catastrophe by holding each other. That's what a shiva means. That's what Yisker is. That's what Tishabav is. We hold each other, we gather together, we find strength in one another, we hear stories, we, we protect one another, we sit down at a Seder together, we sit down at a Suda together, we hold each other. You push us apart, you lose the mechanism of protecting. But we understand that community matters. We understand that community matters. So the only advice I can give you is to reassert the presence of community in the lives of your children 
with even more energy than you ever did it before, right? Many years ago, I, was, I had cancer. I had cancer twice, unfortunately. And the second time was particularly horrifying for my kids, my young kids. And the only thing that got my kids through that experience with some semblance of, uh, of sanity was that a group of folks, of friends of ours, family and friends gathered around my children and in a, in a silent way spoke to them and said, you are protected. You are part of us. You are our responsibility. We will be here for you for the rest of your life. You are not alone. You don't have to suffer this alone. That kind of community, that kind of circle of caring is what kids are going to need now, right now, to know not just parents, but the whole extended family and extended community. And if you're one of these people whose parents live here or your, grand, your grandkids live, then you go and spend some time, assert yourself into their lives. If you're not, if your parents live in Philadelphia or Toronto or Tel Aviv, then go adopt a grandparent when they're here, right? I mean, I, I think that we have to think about new structures of community in order to assert that kind of protection for kids' souls. That's what it's going to take. And that project, our synagogues are going to have to start now to do that. We're going to be a little bit less private, private, and a lot more open about we're here to protect you and care for you. And that I think is something we're going to have to do. That I'm guessing here, because like you, I'm just sort of reaching in the dark, hoping that I can find solutions to these issues before they become acute, before they become terribly, terribly acute. In VBM against the um, and I want to see how you would agree or disagree with someone we had visit us last year virtually. And um, part of what I hear you saying is that hope is a crucial part of buoyancy, and you want to lower the temperature on our anxieties. Um, so last year we had a, uh, we had Danny Gordis here as a BBM, and I think he argued opposite. I think I think what he argued is that actually it is always keeping our finger on the pulse of trauma. Um, that is what has been the source of our resiliency. And the problem with Judaism today is we want happy Judaism. We, we don't want Tachanun. he says is the answer. We put our finger on the pulse of the anxiety or the trauma. And that, never losing that negative is actually what gives us the key to survival. And I think you may be saying the opposite. Certainly you view value studying Jewish history and understanding history, but ritualizing it, embracing it daily, I don't know. So, <laughs> Why, why, why? Um, my laws um, are very generous. And uh, some years ago, they gave us a gift for our anniversary. Uh, the, in LA, there's a music center downtown, the Amundsen Theater, a series of Broadway shows come through town. They gave us that series. Wonderful tickets, like, you know, six row orchestra tickets the whole series because they're generous the money they can do it so we went we enjoyed shows one of the shows that year was called titanic it was the year that the movie titanic there was a broadway show called titanic and it won all the tony awards beautifully presented so this was the road show of titanic we went and a beautiful show the first act of the show, you introduce to each of the three um, decks, the rich people, the Strausses, and 
that class folks on the second deck and the people in steerage underneath, right? The, the immigrants and the, and the others underneath. And the dance is beautiful and the music is beautiful. And the is un, just unbelievable. It's a beautiful show. Just before intermission, come back from intermission. Half the theater's empty. And we're sitting sixth row orchestra. These are taka expensive seats. No one's there, just us. We're the only ones left. Sixth row orchestra. Everyone leaves. What's the message of this? Nobody wants to be on a sinking ship. <laughs> if you say to your kids, God, Judaism's doomed. It's just, we're, we don't have a chance. We're, we're disappearing. If the anti-Semites don't get us, the assimilationists will. I mean, why on earth would anyone want to invest their soul, much less their material resources, in that narrative, in that story? Why would they want to do that? Why would they want to do that? Out of guilt, you think that's going to do it? It's going to do it for a little while, but, you know, eventually it doesn't work anymore. Why would they want to do it? Look, I, my own story. We had a routine. Every Rosh Hashanah had a routine. Mom would come into our bedroom, and mom would say, boys, get up. Time to go to shul with your father. Me, I'm the good kid. I got up, I washed up, I got dressed, I ate breakfast, I went to shul with my dad. My brother Larry sat in bed. I don't want to go to shul. I don't want to go to shul. It's boring. The cantor's boring. The rabbi's boring. The service is too long. I don't believe in God. I don't want to go to shul. My mother would come in. My mother's a great philosopher. She'd come in, she'd give him every reason why you, the whole family's going. It's the Jewish people. We're all celebrating. God commanded us to celebrate that. She gave all the reasons. Finally, she said, listen, come on, you'll come with us, you have to go. My brother every year said, okay, but I'm not wearing it. When he hit, when he hit about 12, 13, he got meaner about it. He said, I don't wanna go. I really don't wanna go. Mom got meaner in return. Mom would look at him, lower her eyes and say, my family died and out, and you won't go to shul? And my brother said, oh, okay. I'm not wearing a tie. And he went to show. And that worked until he was 17. And the year he was 17, my mother went in. My brother said, I'm not going. And I said, Larry, come on. You know what's going to happen. And she said, yeah, but let's let her do it again. You know. <laughs> so she comes in and she says, you know, the Jewish people are celebrating. And the Torah says we have to celebrate. And we're all going together as a family. And we're going to have lunch afterwards at the Ginsburgs. You know, we're going to have a good time. And I'm not going. I don't believe it. And my, my family died in Auschwitz. And my brother looked at her and said, all the more reason not to go. If that's all we can say, all the more reason not to be. That's not the narrative. And that's not even the traditional narrative. The traditional narrative is stated very clearly in the beginning of the morning service when we daven tomorrow morning. Happy are, we are happy people. We are happy people. The first word of the book of Psalms. Happy is the one who, obey, who listens to the words of Torah. Osher, happiness, satisfaction, a sense of fulfillment. That's what Torah is supposed to give us. You say Shechianu all the time. You say happiness. It's a tradition of happiness. What happened to Jewish happiness? Did it die in the Holocaust? I will not let it die in the Holocaust. I refuse to live a depressive, hopeless, dark Jewish life. That's not, first of all, it's not worth it. And second of all, it's not true to our tradition. And third of all, it's not going to motivate my kids 
to get out of bed on Rosh Hashanah morning, come to shul. They're going to come to shul because they're going to hear a word that ennobles them, that gives them a sense of inspiration, of courage to face the brokenness of the world, of purpose to go repair the brokenness of the world, a sense that God cares and that they are part of God's caring for the world. We're only do that if we lift them up, not if we push them down. God, Danny, brilliant. I read him every week. I appreciate everything he did. I argue vociferously all the time. I'm not sure that's what he meant, but I, I'm telling you, I, it is time to get rid of that narrative of Jewish hopelessness. It's not serving us. It's not what God wanted. It's not what God has told us to do. And if we say to our kids, God, it, it, I couldn't imagine being anything except Jewish. Right? I mean, I couldn't imagine living without this, the faith and the strength and the purpose of the people. Then maybe our kids will say the same thing to them. Thank you, Rabbi Ed Feinstein. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Indeed, a standing ovation for that. Thank you so much. And Rabbi, uh, you know, I have to apologize to your daughter. So thank you all for joining us. May Sherman Minkoff's memory be a blessing. Um, thank you for hosting us, Orzion. Thank you all for joining us, and please continue to join us virtually and personally. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.